Busy Newsday doesn't even begin to describe the day. The lead starts right now. In just a few minutes, the president of Ukraine will take questions from the American press as Volodymyr Zelensky makes his bold and symbolic trip to the U.S. His first time outside his country since Russia's invasion almost a year ago. Plus, just in, the January 6th committee might delay its final, final report. What new will we learn about the insurrection? And while we're at it, what new are we going to learn from Donald Trump's about-to-be-released tax returns? And just days before Christmas, with holiday travel ramping up, new states of emergency declared and power grid operators on guard as winter rushes in with a deep freeze over much of the United States. Welcome to Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Symbols of the fight for democracy on display today throughout Washington, D.C. Right now, Ukrainian President Zelensky at the White House meeting with President Biden. This visit marks Zelensky's first time even leaving his country of Ukraine since Russia invaded and started attacking that country. At the beginning of today's meeting, Zelensky told Biden he was so thankful to be there. All my appreciations from my heart, from the hearts of Ukrainians, all Ukrainians, from our nation, strong nations, all the appreciation to you, first of all, Mr. President, for your big support. Thanks, my partisan support. Thanks, Congress. And, and thanks from our just ordinary people. Thanking the American people there. Today, the Biden administration announced an extra $1.8 billion in new aid for Ukraine. That's, this includes the Patriot Missile Defense System to beat back the invasion of the Russian anti-democracy forces. In just minutes, Presidents Biden and Zelensky are going to address the press from the East Room of the White House. We're going to bring that to you live when it happens. Afterwards, Zelensky is going to travel to Capitol Hill, where he will address lawmakers in a joint meeting of Congress. This comes just weeks before Republicans are set to take back control of the House. Many Republicans have expressed criticism of the price tag of the U.S.'s aid to Ukraine. Today's visit is drawing comparisons, among some circles, to 1941. That's when U.K. Prime Minister Winston Churchill spoke before Congress. This was just days after the Pearl Harbor attack. That visit helped cement the alliance that would go on to win World War II against a different autocratic terrorist regime. Let's go to CNN's chief White House correspondent, Phil McNeely, who was in the East Room of the White House awaiting the start of this news conference with Presidents Biden and Zelensky. Phil, what do we expect we're going to hear the, the two leaders talk about in just a few minutes? You know, Jake, it's a visit that is both personal and poignant, very symbolic, but also extraordinarily substantive. And it's the substantive issues that will be most in-depth discussed over the course of the two hours that the two leaders are expected to meet behind closed doors. Also, bilateral meetings with their top national security teams and advisors. The expectation right now is that there is both the message here, the very clear, almost vivid demonstration of an alliance that the White House and U.S. officials maintain has been un completely steadfast over the course of the last nine months, but also the realities kind of undergirding this entire meeting about this moment in a war that continues to grind on, surpassing 300 days at a moment in the time where winter months are putting added pressures, not just on the Ukrainian people, but also the people of Europe, countries with their own domestic concerns as well. And that is where, in large part, one of the issues that those realities create is what actually happens next. And that's one of the questions that both sides are going to have to walk through over the course of their two hours behind closed doors. The president in the Oval Office beforehand 
uh, before they sat down talking about helping Ukraine pursue its goal of a just peace. What that actually entails is still very much an open question at this point in time. There's also, of course, the defense assistance, the U.S. ramping up that support, another $1.8 billion on top of $20 billion already provided, and of course, expanding that to include Patriot missile defense systems, something President Zelensky has repeatedly requested over the course of the last several months. Now, President Biden signing off on that, being willing to move forward. What that means about U.S. support going forward, and what that means about how Russia views it in terms of an escalatory act, also questions that I think are very much being weighed at this moment, Jake. What have you learned, Philip, about uh, Biden's meeting with Zelensky, uh, which happened just about an hour ago? Yeah, it's currently still underway, as far as we know, up to this point. They allotted about two hours on the schedule for this meeting. If passed as precedent, the president is likely to take it longer than the allotted time on the schedule. But I think what U.S. officials were saying leading into this meeting, which I think was so critical, was how much the president values and really relies upon face-to-face interactions when it comes to meeting with foreign leaders. These two men have spoken repeatedly over the course of the last nine months by phone, by video conference, in group settings with other Western leaders. This is the first time they'll be sitting down face-to-face since 2021, the first time since this war started, and that is incredibly important for President Biden, again, because of those unanswered questions here in terms of what the shape of some type of engagement would look like. U.S. officials have been very candid. They don't see one at this moment, given where things stand, both the uh, view that President Putin has been very clear about, but also the view that uh, President Zelensky has laid out again and again, whether or not there is any type of sense of the next months, even years, about how this ends up. Very much something that they want some semblance of an answer to over the course of those meetings, Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly, thanks so much. Could this be a turning point for Ukraine in its war against Russia's brutal invasion. CNN's Will Ripley takes a look now at the significance of Zelensky's visit and why it's happening right now. I remain in the capital. My family is also in Ukraine. My children are in Ukraine. From that moment on February 24th, Volodymyr Zelensky became the symbol of Ukrainian resistance, even as Russian forces poured into Ukraine. Amid speculation he would be evacuated, Zelensky said he didn't need a ride, he needed ammunition. A week into the conflict, in his bunker in Kyiv, Zelensky told CNN it was about much more than Ukraine. It's very important for people in the United States to understand that despite the fact that the war is taking place in Ukraine, it's essentially for values in life, for democracy, for freedom. A message he's repeated in dozens of video appearances at the UN, NATO, the U.S. Congress, in countless parliaments around the world. From the early days of the war, Zelensky told his visitors Ukraine cannot fight Russia alone. It needs money and, above all, weapons. Whenever one type of weapon arrives from Western supporters, he asks for another. A 100 percent air shield for Ukraine, he says, will be one of the most successful steps against Russian aggression. His resolve, and that of Ukrainians, was hardened by atrocities committed by Russian forces, especially north of Kyiv in March. Even as the city of Lysychansk was about to fall this summer, he went there to award soldiers medals. Slowly, the tide of the conflict turned, thanks to advanced U.S. and NATO weapons and some brilliant generalship. Last month, Zelensky went to the only regional capital the Russians had taken, Kherson, hours after its liberation. People waited for Ukrainian army, for our, for, for our soldiers, for all of us. And so, so what, can I, what can I say? Great day, great job. 
Zelensky's spontaneous and relaxed presence among Ukrainians in sharp contrast to Vladimir Putin's staged and grim-faced appearances. After his election in 2019, Zelensky is in some ways the ideal leader to rally his country in wartime, a former comedian with a gift for finding the right words, also youthful stamina and resolution to resist when the odds and casualties have been so great. Zelensky has a well-honed popular touch. He's welcomed Hollywood to his office, posed for selfies with wounded soldiers, met children under fire. All good. Victory is soon. But Zelensky is keenly aware nothing is won yet. He and his generals expect a new Russian offensive early next year. At real personal risk, he continues visiting the front lines. First of all, I would like us to to thank those who are not with us with a moment of silence. Let's honor all heroes who died. That was Tuesday in Bakhmut, where soldiers signed a flag thanking the United States for its weapons. Within hours, Zelensky was crossing the Atlantic to present that flag to President Biden, another example of his flair for selling the need to defend Ukraine as the war against Russia passes 300 days. It's extraordinary just to look at the footage from 2019 when he was elected. I mean, he has aged many more years than that, as war and presidency would do to pretty much anyone. But he's only 44 years old, 16 years younger than Vladimir Putin. He's literally gone from stand-up comedy to standing up to an autocrat uh, that's trying to destroy and take over his country. And he is doing it in a way, Jake, uh, that has surprised so many around the world, inspired so many people here in Ukraine to rally behind him and in their own way, resist this constant onslaught by the Russians. Yeah, I've interviewed a lot of world leaders in my time, and, and very few are as inspiring uh, as President Zelensky. Will Ripley, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Democratic Senator Jack Reed of Rhode Island, who is the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Senator, good to see you, Mr. Chairman, I should say. No, oh, so good to see you, Jake. A, a world leader is coming to meet with President Biden and address Congress while his country is engaged in war. To you, what is the significance of this day? Well, the significance is that he is coming to thank the American people for their support and also President Biden for his leadership coalescing the free world, literally, uh, in support of Ukraine. But second, he's reminding us that uh, his fight is really our fight, that uh, the Ukrainian people are fighting for the values, for the priorities, for the world uh, order that has been the hallmark of Americans' diplomacy and, and Western Europe's diplomacy for, for decades. So he is here to thank and here to uh, communicate that this is a mutual fight. And also, as everyone's pointed out, he, he's here, I think, to continue to inspire his country and inspire the world. As you heard Phil Mattingly report just now, the U.S. is going to be uh, giving Ukraine the Patriot Missile Defense System. Russia threatened unpredictable consequences for the U.S. if, in fact, we give them the missile system, this defensive system. Are you worried at all about any backlash from Russia? Well, there's always a tension. In fact, uh, we've always calibrated our transfer of equipment based upon a, a, a prediction of the reaction of Russia. But this is purely a defensive system. It's an air defense system. Uh, it cannot be used to initiate offensive actions against uh, Russia. Uh, but it can stop their aircraft and uh, other vehicles from attacking Ukraine. So I do not think that he would be foolish enough to use this system as a pretext for doing something uh, escalatory. 
What do you want to hear from President Zelensky when he speaks in just a few hours? Well, I, I think we will hear what he's already said. Uh, thank you to the American people. Thank you for America standing up and rallying the world. And then remind us all that uh, the Ukrainian people are fighting and dying and suffering grotesque atrocities, uh, not just for themselves, but for free men and women everywhere. And that message, I think, will not only inspire uh, people here, but around the globe and send a message to the Russians that we stand together. How concerned are you that when Republicans take over the House of Representatives in a few days, uh, many of the leaders, the Republican House leaders, have been openly questioning uh, giving money and economic aid to Ukraine. How, how worried are you about what happens after McCarthy or whoever becomes mm -hmm. speaker? And, and do you think Zelensky's speech will play any role uh, in securing more aid in the future for Ukraine? No, I think there is a concern because there's been some very, uh, I think, uh, reckless and indeed foolish rhetoric coming out. This is really is a struggle, and we are making sacrifices. Our European allies are making significant economic sacrifices, uh, but nothing compared to the, the, the deaths and the destruction and, uh, that the Ukrainians are doing every day to establish and withhold principles we stand for. So I, would, I think his, his visit will make a difference. He, he'll personalize this to, to members of Congress. Uh, and also, I think he will uh, remind them that, uh, you know, we're not doing the fighting. Uh, and it would be more costly for us if we were engaged. And the Ukrainians are on the front lines. Donald Trump Jr. put out a message on Twitter in which he referred to Zelensky as an ungrateful international welfare queen. I wouldn't normally quote Donald Trump Jr., but there is a movement in this country, the MAGA movement, uh, that listens to him and, and believes that that description is accurate. What's your response? Well, it's ridiculous. Uh, uh, again, it's, it's almost incomprehensible that anyone would uh, use that terminology to describe someone who probably is the most courageous and inspirational leader since Winston Churchill and defending the values that they all claim they are staunch defenders of also. Uh, you know, I can recall a few weeks ago where John Bolton said if his father was in office, the Russians would already be in Kiev. And I think that's right. So uh, this is not about defending democracy. It's just uh, nonsense. Democratic Senator Jack Reed of Rhode Island, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Coming up, we are standing by for that news conference with Zelensky and Biden. And also, we're going to take a closer look at the Patriot missile defense system Ukraine's getting after months of pleading for it. Exactly what is this defense system? How does it work? Why does Ukraine think the system could be key? Plus, the delay just announced by the January 6th Select House Committee for its highly anticipated final report. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead. Those are live pictures from the White House East Room. In just minutes, Presidents Biden and Zelensky will stroll into that room and come together for a joint press conference marked by a monumental new phase of military aid from the U.S. to Ukraine, nearly $2 billion in new assistance, including the long-awaited Patriot Air Defense Missile System, which represents the deepest U.S. commitment yet to helping Ukraine counter Putin's brutal invasion and attack on Ukraine nearly one year after it began. CNN's Oren Lieberman was the first to report that the U.S. 
plan to send that powerful air defense system to Ukraine. And now he's going to show us exactly why the Ukrainians wanted it so much, what exactly it can do. The Patriot missile is the U.S. military's most advanced missile defense system, capable of shooting down a variety of targets from ballistic missiles to aircraft. The system will bolster Ukraine's air defenses, which have had to contend with repeated Russian barrages of drones, missiles, and more. The Patriot batteries will fit like an extended dome over Ukraine's current systems. Patriots can have a range of 40 miles or more, and the radar can detect threats even farther away, a long-range air defense capability which Ukraine has requested for months. Below that are systems like the U.S.-provided NASAMs with a range of 25 miles, a medium-range system that's proven very effective. And then there are the short-range options like Stingers that Ukraine has used as well. Patriots are significant politically and useful militarily, but they're not a game-changer. This is a high-end system. Missile experts say a Patriot battery with missiles costs about a billion dollars, so Ukraine shouldn't use these to take out relatively inexpensive Iranian drones. The system itself has six major parts, according to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. A control station, a radar set, a generator, an antenna, and of course the launcher and missiles. It takes about 100 personnel to operate a full system. Nearly 20 countries have Patriot missile batteries. Israel has used them to intercept drones and even Syrian aircraft. Saudi Arabia has effectively used Patriots to intercept ballistic missiles and more from Yemen. I think the system will work against a wide variety of uh, Russian threats. This is by far the most complicated system that we have given to the Ukrainians. But complete training on Patriot batteries takes weeks, if not more. Time is one luxury Ukraine does not have. And Pentagon officials say that training could take several months. They'll try to compress it where they can. But that is a difficult ask as they move through this process. What else is in this $1.8 billion package? Well, take a look. There's also vehicles. There's precision-guided aerial bombs, as well as mortar systems, rockets, different types of uh, uh, artillery ammunition, tactical gear, and then, of course, the training and the maintenance for all of this as this war drags on now past its 10-month mark. Jake. All right, Orrin Lieberman, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning to Russia's arsenal, sources tell CNN that American-made parts are showing up in Iranian-made drones launched by Russia into Ukraine. And now the Biden administration has propped up an expansive task force to figure out why. CNN's Natasha Bertrand broke this exclusive story. Natasha, one official told you that this is a, quote, all-hands-on-deck initiative. How much progress has the task force made so far? Well, Jake, they really started doing this over the last several weeks, maybe months, and it is a really tough job because what they have to do is they really have to go to every American company whose components are found in these Iranian drones being shot down across Ukraine by Ukrainian forces and tell them that their components have been found in those drones and ask them to go through their entire supply chain and figure out where that point was, where the supply was diverted. Because these companies are telling the United States, look, we don't know where our microchips are going, where our uh, you know processors are going, all of these small kind of microelectronics that are very easily accessible even online. And so what the U.S. is doing now is they want to kind of, as a first step, force more accountability for these companies to have better visibility into the distributors, the resellers, where these products are actually ending up. Because, of course, the real problem here is the distributors. It's the middlemen, the resellers who are taking these products that are really widely available and then selling them to bad actors. And of course, the administration has 
levied very tough sanctions on the Iranian front companies and other entities that have been purchasing these and trying to use them, of course, to build these drones. But ultimately, there are so many parts of this that fall through the cracks just because of the sheer number of these components available just freely kind of off the shelf that it's a really going to be a, a long effort um, by this task force. Uh, and also, I have to say, so the Ukrainians have been saying for months they want the United States to label Russia uh, a terrorist state, a state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, where is the Biden administration on that decision? Yeah, so really interestingly, we learned that the administration has actually been working with Congress over the last several months on a kind of middle ground. And what they have proposed to lawmakers, many of whom actually did want that state sponsor of terror designation, is something called an aggressor state designation. That does not exist. That is something that the administration— just making it up? Right. It is not something that is currently out there in the kind of a statute. And so they believe that this could be a middle ground, kind of a compromise— It's a step short of the state sponsor of terror designation, which the administration believes would have too many negative consequences, too many unintended side effects, things like uh, sanctioning of countries that we have a relationship with, things like, of course, cutting off all diplomatic communication with the Russians. And the aggressor state designation would essentially allow the administration to have these enhanced authorities to sanction certain entities in Russia, certain senior Russian officials, without, the administration says, all of these kind of negative side effects. So, They've been working on crafting this legislation. The interesting part of this is they are waiting to see whether President Zelensky tonight in his address to Congress actually mentions it and endorses this designation. And if he does, we're told then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is actually going to introduce a standalone bill putting this legislation forward. And it could pass. However, it is very unlikely given how little time we have left before Congress goes to recess. Zelensky's made it pretty clear he wants the state sponsor of terrorism designation. Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much. Appreciate it. In just a few minutes, President Biden and Ukraine's President Zelensky will walk out into the East Room there. You're seeing pictures of it live. Take questions from reporters at the White House. First, we're going to tell you about what we're learning about former President Donald Trump and his taxes, which are now in the hands of Congress. Stay with us. It's a very, 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 very busy day. Very busy Wednesday here in Washington, D.C. Right now, we are standing by for the joint news conference between President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. That could literally begin at any moment. They're going to stride out into the East Room there. You see all the journalists waiting to ask questions. While we wait, along with them, we're turning to our politics lead. It looks as though we're going to have to wait at least one more day before we see the transcripts and the documents and the evidence from the January 6th Select House Committee's year-and-a-half-long investigation, the panel said a short while ago that it now anticipates its final report will not be released today, as previously announced several times, but tomorrow. CNN Sarah Murray is following this for us. Sarah, do we have any official reason? I mean, I wouldn't release it today if I were them anyway, because of Zelensky bringing all the attention. But do we have an official reason why they're not? They didn't provide an official reason. I mean, I think a couple realities are at play here. One is there is a lot going on in Washington. They're trying to get a spending bill done at the Capitol. Zelensky is at the White House. He's going to be at the Capitol. So that's taking a lot of, you know, oxygen out of the room. I think the other reality is they have spent a long time tinkering with this report. I mean, remember the couple of days where Benny Thompson was saying, actually, we'll have eight chapters for you on Monday, as well as our public meeting. That didn't happen. And then they said, we're going to have the report for you on Wednesday. That hasn't happened. I think there has been a lot of tinkering going on that sort of uh, delayed or contributed to the delay ultimately in this public rollout. They are still saying we may still get some information later today, but not being very specific on what that means at this point. So one of the things that's been an interesting subplot of the insurrection and the investigation is the attorneys hired by the Trump team for witnesses 
and the role that they played. And you have some new reporting when it comes to that star witness, Cassidy Hutchinson, the former aide to the White House chief of staff. That's right. I mean, remember, we heard from the committee earlier this week that there was a lawyer who was telling, uh, you know, one of their clients, you can just say that you don't recall things to this committee, even if you do actually remember them. Well, that witness, it turns out, was Cassidy Hutchinson. And the lawyer, it turns out, is Stefan Passantino, who was a top White House lawyer in the Trump administration. Top ethics lawyer. Top ethics, <laughs> right. Top White House ethics right? you lawyer. You can't write this stuff. In the Trump administration. And, you know, Passantino provided a statement to CNN insisting that he represented Hutchinson ethically and that they were honest and they felt that she was forthright with the committee. But ultimately, she was not comfortable with that representation. She dropped Passantino as a lawyer. She got new lawyers. And then she was in that public hearing where she provided that bombshell testimony. And it's not just interesting, it's important. We talked about how the referrals to DOJ, a lot of that, you know, is not legally binding. But look, if they hand over evidence that there were attempts to actually obstruct or tamper with witnesses in a congressional investigation, that's stuff DOJ is going to take a look at. And there are other attorneys being paid for by the Trump PAC and others. And you see the witness testimony as described by the January 6th committee saying things along the lines of this person uh, was reading from it's, it was like she was reading from talking points. Right. Or someone was offered a lucrative job if they were willing to, you know, stay essentially on the former president's team. I think when we look, when we finally get this report, all of its pages, all of its transcripts, that's the kind of underlying evidence we're going to be looking for. We're going to be looking for more names of attorneys and more witnesses they were trying to. Influence. Yeah, because that is potentially and it's not up to me and I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a judge, but potentially that could be considered by some to be obstruction of justice. It could be criminal. Sarah Murray, thank you so much. Meanwhile, another symbol in the fight for democracy, which also includes transparency and the idea that public servants are actually servants for the public, the tax returns. Former President Trump has spent years and lots of money trying to keep private are going to be made public finally in the coming days. The amount of information we're going to be able to see, however, will be determined by the Democratic-controlled House Ways and Means Committee, Democratic-controlled just for another, another few days. And that committee voted along party lines late Tuesday to release some materials on Trump's taxes. CNN's Lauren Fox is live from Capitol Hill for us. And Lauren, the committee mentioned last night that there was a big gap in what the IRS was supposed to do with Trump's returns when Trump was president and in charge of the IRS and what the IRS actually did. Yeah, I mean, IRS statute under the mandatory audit program means that when a new president and a new vice president come into office, they are supposed to take a look, audit those individuals' tax returns through that program. Well, Democrats in their report that they released last night, Jake, said that that simply didn't happen the first two years that former President Donald Trump was in office. Instead, what Democrats are saying happened is that they did not begin that audit until 2019, only after House Ways and Means Chairman Richard sent a request to the Treasury Department for Trump's tax return, saying he wanted them because he wanted to understand if this presidential audit program was working effectively. So that was the big takeaway from Democrats last night in their report. But of course, we got a little more information as well. And how much uh, do we know in terms of how much Trump paid in taxes during this time frame, as well as his reported losses. Do, have they, do we know those numbers? Yeah. I mean, one other report that we got last night was from the Joint Committee on Taxation. They're sort of the nonpartisan number crunchers up here on Capitol Hill. Their report was a lot more dense, and it sort of told a story that we were familiar with, thanks to the New York Times' 2020 bombshell report on Trump's taxes, which is that he used losses to reduce his tax bill. Now, the JCT is not saying that that was against the law. They're not even suggesting that maybe Trump should have paid more 
sure that's not their job. But what they are saying in this report is maybe these are some places that the IRS should be looking more closely at. They also lay out what Trump paid in taxes for those six years in which the tax committee has his returns. And a couple of things emerge. One of them is the fact that he paid very little taxes in several of those years. Some of those years we knew because of the New York Times reporting, uh, but that he paid really $750 in 2016 and 2017 in federal income taxes. We should note that there were other years he paid more, but in 2020, he paid $0 in federal income taxes. Uh, And obviously that is something that Democrats say might need to be taken a closer look at. We should also note that Trump's uh, spokesman released a statement yesterday saying that this was an unprecedented leak, Republicans decrying the release of these returns. We expect we may get them in upcoming days, but information, personal information, has to be redacted before that's released, Jake. A broken tax code, as always. Lauren Fox, thank you so much for that report. Any minute now, the news conference with President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. We're going to sneak in this quick break. We're going to bring that to you live. Stay with us. We are, based on the movement inside the East Room of the White House, just moments away from the start of President Biden's news conference alongside President Zelensky of Ukraine. Let's bring in CNN's Phil Mattingly in the East Room of the White House. Uh, and Phil, uh, what, what can you tell us? Uh, obviously, just in the last few minutes, we've seen a lot of movement. The Ukrainian delegation, Secretary Austin, Secretary Blinken coming in. Yeah, it's the universal signal that things are actually starting to move forward to some degree when the top two uh, leaders have their national security teams come in and sit down. This meeting was scheduled to start around 2.15. That's around the time I was in the Oval Office with the pool. Looks like it ran a little longer than was expected, and I think to some degree that was expected, given the scale of the issues that the two leaders needed to address, needed to work through. There's really two kind of critical elements here as they get prepared uh, to speak here at this press conference, take questions from reporters, and that is the intent to make very clear the unity, the steadfast support that the U.S. and its Western allies will continue to provide, uh, but also to Capitol Hill, uh, where uh, President Zelensky will be heading after this press conference, making very clear as lawmakers consider an additional $45 billion in assistance, economic and uh, defense assistance to Ukraine, uh, that it is unity that needs to be maintained here in the United States and in that Western coalition. That's as much the message here as anything else, particularly as this war continues to grind on. And U.S. officials have been very clear there is no clear end game right now, uh, given how Russian forces continue to operate. So how the presidents address both their behind-the-scenes meeting, but also what the pathway is going forward, knowing full well that we're not talking about days or weeks. We are still talking about months, if not years, in a very, very critical moment in a conflict that has now gone more than three days, Jake. That's right. We got the two-minute warning. We're expecting Presidents Biden and Zelensky to come out, but let me uh, bring in Clarissa Ward, uh, who has been to Ukraine more times than I can count. Uh, And Clarissa, I'm going to have to interrupt you at some point, and I apologize for that ahead of time, but uh, tell me what you think is the the importance of Zelensky coming to the White House and, and speaking today. Well, first of all, Jake, this is his first time leaving the country since the invasion. So this is already a bold move. Uh, just yesterday, he was on the front lines in the eastern part of the country in the city of Bakhmut. Today, he's at the White House. Uh, he is making it very clear that this relationship is critically important, that the Ukrainian people are incredibly grateful and appreciative of the support. But he also wants to shore up continued support. He understands implicitly the challenges that are facing Ukraine ahead. 
Uh, they're plunged into a frigid winter. Their critical civilian infrastructure is being bombarded. They are facing real challenges and battles in the east and southern eastern parts of the country. They want more weapons. They want better weapons. And he wants to make the case to the American people that Clar- they should get them more. All right, Clarissa. Clarissa, let me interrupt. Here's President Zelensky of Ukraine and President Biden of the United States. Let's listen in. President Zelensky, I'm honored to welcome you back to the White House. We spent an awful lot of time on the telephone as well as on video, but it's good to see you in person again. And uh, we've been in close and frequent communication throughout this conflict from the very beginning, but particularly, uh, it's particularly meaningful to talk with another in person, look each other in the eye, because leadership through this uh, terrible crisis has inspired the Ukrainian people, as you have done, Mr. President, and the American people and the entire world. This visit to Washington, your first trip outside Ukraine since February, comes as President Putin is escalating his attacks, his brutal attacks, targeting critical infrastructure to make life as hard as possible for not only innocent Ukrainians, but children and young children, and everything from orphanages to schools. It's just outrageous what he's doing. And we've, uh, as we've heard, into the, as we head into the new year, it's important for the American people and for the world to hear directly from you, Mr. President, about Ukraine's fight and the need to continue to stand together through 2023. This visit also falls on the 300-day mark of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. 300 days since Putin launched an unprovoked, unjustified, all-out assault on the free people of Ukraine. 300 days of Ukrainian people showing Russia and the world their steel backbone, their love of country, and their unbreakable determination, and I emphasize unbreakable determination, to choose their own path. To Ukrainian people, I say to them all, you have demonstrated, you have shown your strong stand against aggression in the face of the imperial appetites of autocrats who wrongfully believe you might, you might, they, they might be able to make might right, and they're not able to do it. Thus far, they've not, they've stood alone, you know, and you have, but you haven't stood alone. You have had significant, significant help. We've never stand alone. You will never stand alone. When Ukraine's freedom was threatened, the American people, like generations of Americans before us, did not hesitate. The support from all across this country, Americans of every walk of life, Democrats and Republicans alike, had the resources and the, to rebound and resounding united way to do, provide unequivocal and unbending support for Ukraine. Because we understand in our bones that Ukraine's fight is part of something much bigger. The American people know that if we stand by in the face of such blatant attacks on liberty and democracy and the core principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity, the world would surely face worse consequences. And as I said, when Putin rolled his tanks into Ukraine in February, American, American people are prepared to have us stand up to bullies, stand up for freedom. That's who we are as Americans. And that's exactly what we've done. Even before the invasion began and Putin threatened Ukraine by building up his forces, 
We helped make sure Ukraine would be prepared to defend itself, even before they crossed into Ukraine. We provided a steady stream of defensive weapons, including air defense systems and artillery, ammunition, and so much more. And we've not done it alone. From the very beginning, the United States rallied allies and partners from around the world to stand strong with Ukraine and impose unprecedented, and I emphasize unprecedented, sanctions and export controls on Russia, making it harder for the Kremlin to wage this brutal war. More than 50 nations have committed nearly 2,000 tanks and other armored vehicles, more than 800 artillery systems, more than 2 million rounds of artillery ammunition, and more than 50, more than 50 advanced multiple rocket launching systems, anti-ship and anti-air and defense systems, all to strengthen Ukraine. Together, we provided billions of dollars in direct budgetary support to make sure the Ukrainian government can keep providing basic fundamental services to the Iranian people, like health care, education, and emergency personnel. This includes another $2 billion that in direct budget support from the American people that the World Bank distributed earlier this week. We provided humanitarian assistance to help the millions of Ukrainians who have been forced to flee their homes because of Putin's inhumane, brutal war. Communities across Europe have opened their hearts and their homes to help Ukrainians in need. The United States has been proud to welcome more than 221,000 Ukrainians seeking refuge since March of 2022, including as part of Uniting for Ukraine, as, as part of our Uniting for Ukraine program. And today, USAID is committing more than $374 million in urgently needed humanitarian assistance for Ukraine. This will help provide food and cash assistance for more than 1.5 million Ukrainian people, as well as access to health care, safe drinking water, and help stay warm in the winter to more than, for more than 2.5 million Ukrainians. The United States and our allies and partners around the world have delivered a broad range of assistance at historic speed, and it's been critical to bolstering Ukraine's success thus far. Ukraine has won the Battle of Kyiv, has won the Battle of Kherson, has won the Battle of Kharkiv. Ukraine has defied Russia's expectations at every single turn. <clears throat> and President Zelensky, Zelensky, you have made it clear that he is uh, open to pursuing, uh, um, well, let me put it this way. He's not open, but you're open to pursuing peace. You're open to pursuing a just peace. We also know that Putin has no intention, no intention of stopping this cruel war. And the United States is committed to ensuring that the brave Ukrainian people can continue, continue to defend their country against Russian aggressions as long as it takes. And I want to thank the members of Congress and their, for their broad bipartisan support to Ukraine. And I look forward to signing the omnibus, omnibus bill soon, which includes $45 billion. $45 billion in additional funding for Ukraine. I'll also sign into law the National Defense Authorization Act, which includes author authorities for to make it easier for the Department of Defense to procure critical munitions and defense materials for Ukraine and other key materials to strengthen our national security. Today, I'm announcing the next tranche of our security assistance to Ukraine. 
$1.85 billion package of security assistance that includes both direct transfers of equipment to you that Ukraine needs, as well as contracts to supply ammunition Ukraine will need in the months ahead for its artillery, its tanks, and its rocket launchers. Critically, in addition to these new capabilities, like precision aerial munitions, the package will include a Patriot missile battery, which will, and one which will train Ukrainian forces to operate as part of the ongoing effort to help bolster Ukraine's air defense. This could take some time to complete the necessary training, but the Patriot battery will be another critical asset for Ukraine as it defends itself against Russian aggression. Altogether, today's new security assistance with humanitarian funding amounts to $2.2 billion in additional support for the Ukrainian people. We should be clear about what Russia is doing. It is purposely attacking Ukraine's critical infrastructure, destroying the systems to provide heat and light to the Ukrainian people during the coldest, darkest part of the year. Russia is using winter as a weapon, freezing people, starving people, cutting them off from one another. It's the latest example of the outrageous atrocities the Russian forces are committing against innocent Ukrainian civilians, children, and their families. And the United States is working together with our allies and partners to provide critical equipment to help Ukraine make emergency repairs to their power transmission systems and strengthen the stability of Ukraine's grid in the face of Russia's targeted attacks. We're also working to hold Russia accountable, including efforts in Congress that will make it easier to seek justice for Russia's war crimes in Ukraine. Let me close with this. Tonight is the fourth night of, night of Hanukkah, a time when Jewish people around the world, President Zelensky and many of the families among them, honor the timeless miracle of a small band of warriors fighting for their values and their freedom against a much larger foe and how they endured and how they overcame. How the flame of faith, with only enough oil for one day, burned brightly for eight days. A story of survival and resilience that reminds us that the coldest days of the year, that light will always prevail over darkness and hope drives away despair. And that the human spirit is unconquerable as long as there are good people willing to do what is right. This year has brought so much needless suffering and loss to the Ukrainian people. But I want you to know, President Zelensky, I want you to know that all the people of Ukraine to know as well, the American people have been with you every step of the way, and we will stay with you. We will stay with you for as long as it takes. What you're doing, what you've achieved, it matters not just to Ukraine, but to the entire world. And together, I have no doubt we'll keep the flame of liberty burning bright, and the light will remain and prevail over the darkness. Thank you for being here, Mr. President. We're going to stand with you. Thank you. <clears throat> Dear Mr. President, please put on the equipment. Once again, Mr. President, President Biden, audience, journalists, 
ladies and gentlemen. I came here to the United States to uh, forward the, thank, the word of thanks to the people of America, people who do so much for Ukraine. I am thankful for all of this. This visit to the United States became a really a historic one for our relations with the United States and the American leadership. In the last 30 days of this war, we have started a new face of our interrelations with the United States. We became a real uh, uh, partners and allies with the content. And I felt today during all of my meetings and during our talks. Once again, I would like to thank Mr. President, President Biden, for his candid support and what is very important, the understanding of Ukraine and for the support of the international coalition to strengthen international law. I am grateful to President Biden for his personal uh, efforts, his steps that unite the partners and a global south. When all countries of the world uh, take some position uh, and are focusing on cooperation and uh, mutual understanding, this is very uh, useful for all of the countries, for Ukraine, for the United States. I want to thank the Congress for bipartisan, bicameral support, and uh, I am looking forward to good meetings with with the members of the Congress and their support. This is the visit that I am I'm here today to meet with the Congress. The main issue during my today's talks is to strengthen Ukraine. Next year, our movement forward to fight for our freedom and independence. I have good news returning home. President Biden announced a new package of defense support uh, about two billion U.S. dollars, and the strongest element of this package is the Patriots battery systems, something that will strengthen our air defense significantly. This is a very important step uh, to create a secure airspace for Ukraine, and that's the only way we would be able to deprive the terrorist uh, country and their terror attack to attack to strike our energy sector our people and our infrastructure. We had a very good uh, negotiation and talks about our strategic steps, which we discussed with President Biden, and what we expect next year and for what we are preparing. This is very important for all Ukrainians, and I am hopeful. And once again, thank you, Mr. President, for $45 billion, because this is a big assistance, and I hope that the Congress will approve this financial assistance for our crime uh, country. This is almost $45 billion. Thank you very much for the support. Every dollar of this investment for the United States is going to be strengthening of global security. I know that the American leadership will be strong and will play important role in global scope. And the United States will help us to defend our values, values and independence. And regardless of changes in the Congress, I believe that there will be bipartisan and bicameral support. And I know that everybody works for this. And of course, 
during all of uh, my meetings today, uh, we discussed uh, issues of uh, standoff against uh, in a terror of Russia, their destruction of our energy infrastructure. We need to survive this winter. We need to protect our people, and we need to be very specific in this area. This is a key humanitarian issue for us right now. This is the survival issue. We are discussing sanctions and uh, legal pressure on the terrorist country, Russia. Russia needs to, uh, hold, to be hold, held accountable for everything it does against us, against our people, against Europe and the whole free world. And it is very important that we have uh, the peace formula. And for that, we uh, offer very specific steps what America can do to help us to implement them. We propose global uh, formula for peace summit. I'm thankful for our American counterparts that they feel us and understand how it, important it is to continue and, and uh, stay on course and uh, work on uh, integrity of the country and international uh, rule of law. We will also need, as soon as our defense capabilities will be strengthened in the next few months, I don't want to discuss it in details right now. I believe you understand why, and I, but I am very grateful to President Biden. Thank you for your attention to all of these issues. Glory to Ukraine. Thank you very much, Mr. President. We're going to take a Questions from four different reporters, and let's start with Alex of Yahoo News. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, in 20, uh, 2022, you presided over a bipartisan international coalition to support Ukraine. How will you keep that coalition from fraying in 2023? And uh, President Zelensky, welcome to Washington on this beautiful winter day. What is your message to the American people? Well, answering your question first, uh, um, I'm not at all worried about holding the alliance together, NATO and the European Union, as well as other nations. I assume this is simultaneous. All right. <laughs> okay. I've never seen NATO or the EU more united about anything at all. And uh, I see no sign of there being any change. We all know what's at stake here. Our European partners, all the more so. They fully understand it. This is about, we've never seen a major invasion of a European country since World War II. And they see no signs that, that Putin is going to do anything to change that unless we resist and we help the Ukrainians resist. We all know what's at stake the very idea of sovereignty, the UN Charter. Putin uh, thought he would weaken NATO. Instead, he strengthened NATO. I once said to him that we talk about the, he want, wanted to see the, uh, you know, Europe end up being uh, um, divided. Uh, the, uh, and instead, what did he do? He produced a more united Europe with Sweden and uh, Finland joining. So I don't see any reason to believe there will be any lessening of support. And as we reach out to our NATO allies, our Secretary of Defense and our Secretary of State, we get continued support, not only there, but also from around the world, from Japan and many other countries as well. So I feel very good about the solidarity of support for Ukraine. 
Дякую за запитання. And what's next? Will it turn into a new counteroffensive or some kind of peace talks? So, Mr. Biden, Mr. Zelensky, could you share your vision? What's the fair way to end this war? And how do you understand this war? So, fair peace. Thank you. My my view. Your guy. I think we have. Come <laughs> here. I see. I see. Although I like it very much already. Yeah, <laughs> You have started this question. I'm sorry. I, sometimes I switch on my native language. Uh, you have started by stating that your family is in Kyiv and without the assistance of the United States. Uh, this is absolutely true. The U.S. leadership in this assistance is uh, strong. And uh, again, yeah, I would like to remind you that U.S. family will be in danger uh, without the armed forces of Ukraine, which is very important. That concerns your questions per se. Uh, what would you like to hear? Uh, uh, just peace? I don't know. I don't know what just peace is. It's a very philosophical description. If there is a uh, just war? I don't know. 
Uh, I'm sorry I'm reminding, uh, I'm talking about children a lot today, but as a father, uh, I would like to emphasize, you know, how many, how many parents lost their sons and daughters on the front lines. So what is just peace for them? Money is nothing. And no compensations or reparations are uh, of, uh, of no consequence. They live by revenge, Oje. I think this is a tremendous tragedy, and the longer the war uh, lasts, the longer this aggression lasts, there will be more parents who live for the sake of vengeance or revenge, and I know a lot of people like that. So there can't be any just peace in the war that was imposed on us by these, I, I don't know how to describe that, because we are in the White House and I can't find the proper language. So these inhumans, I would say. Let me respond. I, I think we have the, we share the exact same vision and uh, that uh, a free, independent, prosperous, and secure Ukraine is the vision. We both want this war to end. We both want it to end. And as I've said, uh, uh, it could end a day if Putin had any dignity at all and did the right thing and just said, pulled out. But uh, that's not going to happen. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen now. So what comes next? We talked about today was we're going to continue to help Ukraine succeed on the battlefield. It can succeed in the battlefield with our help and the help of our European allies and others. So that if and when President Zelensky is ready to talk with the Russians, he will be able to succeed as well because he will have won on the battlefield. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't think we should underestimate the impact this war is having on Russia and the losses they're suffering. And, uh, you saw just, uh, I think it was two days ago, Putin uh, saying that uh, this is much tougher than he thought. He thought he could break NATO. He thought he could break the West. He thought he could break the alliance. He thought he could be welcomed by the Ukrainian people that were Russian-speaking. He was wrong, wrong, and wrong. He continues to be wrong. The sooner he makes it it's clear that he cannot possibly win this war, that's when the time we have to put the, this president in a position to be able to decide how he wants the war to end. My turn, huh? Please, yeah. Phil Madley, Matt uh, uh, Madley of uh, CNN. Thank you, Mr. President. Welcome, Mr. President. Mr. President, to start with you. Um, your advisors often talk about how important, how critically important you view face-to-face -face interaction. I'm wondering, after spending two-plus hours face-to-face -face with President Zelensky, uh, what you learned or what you took from the meeting that perhaps you couldn't glean or learn in the phone calls or video conferences, and somewhat tied to that, was there any discussion related to 
the U.S. assessment that Russia would not take escalatory action now that Patriots are being sent, will be a Patriot battery will be delivered? Let me answer the first question, the first part of your question. You know I get kidded for saying that there's uh, all politics is personal. It's all about looking someone in the eye, and I mean it sincerely. I don't think there's any, any, any substitute for sitting down face to face with a friend or a foe and looking them in the eye. And uh, that's exactly uh, what's happening at this moment. We've done that more than once, and we're going to continue to do it. And the winter is setting in, and Putin is uh, increasingly going after civilian targets and women and children, orphanages. This guy is, well, but, uh, but he's going to fail. And uh, he's going to fail. He's already failed because he now knows that there's no way he's ever going to occupy all of Ukraine. There's no way in which he's going to be accepted by the Ukrainian people. And so uh, he's failed in the past, and it was very important uh, for him and everyone else to see that President Zelensky and I are united uh, two countries together to make sure he cannot succeed. And I think I may be mistaken, but I know I judge every leader by the way they, what they say to me, their consistency, and look him in the eye. This guy has in his, to his very soul, is who he says he is. It's clear who he is. He's willing to give his life for his country. And all the folks that came with him today. And so I think it's, uh, he, it's important for him to know we are going to do everything in our power, everything in our power to see that he succeeds. Thanks. What was the second part of your question? I just asked if you had discussed how the U.S. calculated the escalatory effect of sending a Patriot missile battery to Ukraine. I did not discuss that at all with the, with the president, but I, we do not. It's a defensive system. It's a defensive weapon system. It's not escalatory. It's defensive. And it's easy to uh, not, and we'd love to not have to have them use it. Just stop the attacks. President Zelensky, uh, again, welcome. You mentioned earlier that you wanted to make this trip uh, for a while now. Why now? And also, can you tell me what you think the message you are sending to President Putin is, given the fact that 24 hours ago you were on the ground in the front lines with artillery echoing behind you, and now you find yourself in the White House standing next to the president? Thank you very much for your question. As to what is the message for Putin? I am standing here in the United States with President Biden on the same podium because I respect him as a, a person, as a president, as a human being for his uh, position. And for me, this is a historic moment. I can send messages to President Biden. For example, if it's not serious, you said, what's going to happen after Patriots uh, are installed? After that, we will send another signal to President Biden that we would like to get more Patriots. We're working. That is our life. We are in war. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. That, that is my appreciation. As to President Putin, in 2019, 
We had a Normandy meeting in 2019. I became the president of Ukraine, and at that time we were sending maximum messages to President Putin, telling him that there shouldn't be a full-scale invasion to stop aggression, to renew our territory, territorial integrity, to find diplomatic solution. God forbid we should not have a full-scale war. At that time, he said it won't happen. He was lying. So what kind of message I can send him after he actually uh, 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 destroyed our life, is destroying our life? He can even go further somewhere where the Soviet Union stayed before this. So he might want to invade those territories too. I believe that there is something mortal about his inadequate approach to the world. Why we need to send him a message? He needs to be interested in getting attention from the world because he is not a subject of civilized people. He should be interested in trying to save something of his culture and history of his country. So that's his problem now. This, this will be the last question. Olga Koshlenko, One Plus One TV channel. Uh, when the full-scale invasion uh, started, U.S. officials uh, said that Ukraine uh, cannot uh, receive um, Petros because, as you said, it might be um, unnecessary escalation. And now it is happening. Right now, today, it is happening. Um, and now Ukraine desperately needs more capabilities, including long-range missiles uh, attackers. Maybe I sound naive, but can we make a long story short and give Ukraine all capabilities it needs and uh, liberate all territories rather sooner than later? Thank you. His answer is yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Let me be straightforward with you here. Look, the fact is that uh, it's important to remember that before Russia invaded, we uh, dedicated an enormous amount of security assistance to Ukraine. And, uh, and we've given Ukraine what they needed, when they needed to defend themselves. And since the invasion, that has resulted in more than $20 billion in terms of security assistance. Just today, I approved another $1.8 billion in additional assistance to Ukraine uh, for it to succeed on the battlefield. And we're focused on working with allies and partners to generate capability in four key areas. Air defense, as, known, as we know today, the Patriot is the best of that. Secondly is to, uh, and we're looking to do more, uh, we provided hundreds of advanced artillery systems and dozens of, to, from dozens of countries. Thirdly, we've worked with partners to get Ukraine tanks and other armored vehicles. And fourthly, we've announced today another 200,000 rounds of additional ammunition. Now you say, why don't we just give Ukraine everything there is to give? Well, for two reasons. One, there's an entire alliance that is critical to stay with Ukraine. And the idea that we would give 
Ukraine material that is fundamentally different than is already going there would have a prospect of breaking up NATO and breaking up the European Union and the rest of the world. We're going to give Ukraine what it needs to be able to defend itself, to be able to succeed and succeed in the battlefield. And uh, the other piece of this is, you may recall, one of the reasons why I have spent, well, I won't tell you the calculation, but I've spent several hundred hours face-to-face with our European allies and the heads of state of those countries and making the case as to why it was overwhelming in their interest that they continue to support Ukraine. They understand it fully, but they're not looking to go to war with Russia. They're not looking for a third world war. And I think they can all be avoided by making sure that Ukraine is able to succeed in the battlefield. So anyway, there's more to say, but I probably already said too much. Thank you. Well, thank you all very, very much. Appreciate your time and attention. And uh, as I said, Mr. President, you don't have to worry. Uh, we are staying with Ukraine as long as Ukraine is there. Thank you all. Thank you so much. All the best. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain in your seats until the official delegations have departed. Thank you. President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky wrapping up their joint news conference in the East Room of the White House just now, a hugely significant and symbolic visit, highlighting the Biden administration's effort to strengthen the Western alliance and NATO in the wake of Russia's brutal and unprovoked assault on Ukraine. We're covering this historic news conference from all angles, as only CNN can. First, let's go to Will Ripley, who joins us live from Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, and you heard there... Uh, Will, President Zelensky talking about uh, the very notion of a just peace and how can there be a just peace when this war is so unjust. And he warned the Russian people and the Russian leaders that the longer this war goes on, the more impossible it will be to, uh, to appease parents who lose their children, Ukrainians who lose their children. The more this goes on, the more parents will live only for revenge, he said. And it is a sentiment that is shared not just by people who've lost their children, and there are many of those people, far too many of those people here in Ukraine, but also by the the taxi drivers, the people who are working at the restaurants, the people who, even when there are explosions outside of the hotel and the lights go out, still keep doing their jobs. and, and, And they say that they are up against, you know, President Zelensky put it politely, he said, inhumane, inhuman. Uh, They call Russia animals. I've heard that term said repeatedly on the ground here. That is the anger, this vehement hatred of their neighbors who, in the not-too-distant past, you could cross back and forth, you could go for a weekend in Russia, Russians could go to Crimea, you know, for, you know, or holiday in Odessa, and those days are over. Now, there are Russians who moved here before the war uh, some of whom I met on Snake Island, uh, which Ukraine recaptured five months ago, born in Russia, now Ukrainian citizens fighting to defend Ukraine against their home country. So it is not a blanket statement. Uh, they understand that there are people in Russia who support Ukraine, who don't support the war, uh, but they believe, and this is the commonly held view, and I've had a lot of conversations with people here about this, that the vast majority of Russians are so um, 
uninformed because of the propaganda, because of the fact that Putin controls the narrative, controls the news so uh, tightly and so intensely. So all these people in these rural areas in particular who are being you know, mobilized and they have, you know, they have advertisements to recruit soldiers that look like they're aimed at children with cartoons saying, you know, Sasha is going to have a great job. He's going to have new friends. He's going to have a great career. Be like Sasha. But people in Russia that only are listening to the state media, the propagandists, that's what they believe. And it's going to be very, very hard in the event that there is a peace deal at some point to erase that deep-seated hatred and anger that people are feeling here every time that bombs are raining down, air raid sirens are going off, and more and more families are losing children. Yeah, Zelensky said something similar to me uh, when I interviewed him in April about how difficult it's going to be to achieve any sort of peace given how much Putin is targeting civilians and, and making it impossible for him to negotiate any sort of peace because uh, the masses of Ukrainians would, would oppose him. Uh, Phil Mattingly, our chief White House correspondent, uh, you had the opportunity to ask a question to both presidents, Biden and Zelensky. Uh, what stood out to you about their answers? You know, to some degree, it was the ease with which they addressed what is a very clear uh, and almost natural tension when it comes to U.S. support for Ukraine. Obviously, Ukraine has constantly and regularly requested uh, far greater capacity, far greater capabilities from the United States military, from President Biden directly, often in phone calls between Zelensky and Biden. This is something uh, that goes back and forth. And the U.S., as President Biden detailed, uh, is unwilling, particularly for any weapons that may be used or construed as offensive weapons, uh, to deliver or say yes on that account. And President Zelensky's willingness to acknowledge that and to some degree make light of it by saying once they have one Patriot missile battery, which the U.S. is in the process of sending over, uh, he will then get on the phone with President Biden and ask for many more. And Biden smiled, laughed and, and said, we're working on it. And I think that has been a tension and a real tension over the course of the entirety of this war. And it's not one that has created fractures, but it is certainly one that hangs over all of these discussions regarding U.S. support. And I think it kind of underscores uh, something you sensed as these two leaders spoke, both before and after their meeting, uh, in the question that which I asked President Biden was trying to get at this to some degree, which is the value with which President Biden places on face-to-face meetings and why they are so critical and why an understanding of the individual that he's meeting with, whoever the leader is, uh, is so critical. And I think some level of what you saw in this press conference after reflected the dynamics that were very much in existence uh, during those two hours behind closed doors, Jake. Let's go to Clarissa Ward, who has spent a lot of time in Ukraine. Clarissa, one of the messages that was unmistakable from both President Biden and Ukrainian President Zelensky is This war is not anticipated to end anytime soon. Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting because they weren't trying to sugarcoat that, Jake. And if you talk to some Western officials privately, they will tell you, particularly in Europe, that there is concern. Uh, about what a possible mid to long term end game could look like in Ukraine. But what you heard again and again from President Biden today, the need to continue to stand together through 2023. So we're not talking about weeks, months. We're talking about another year here, potentially, Jake. He said again, we will stand with you. We will stay with you as long as it takes. Also interesting, I thought, to hear President Volodymyr Zelensky unsurprisingly, but really articulating a pretty maximalist position, essentially, that in terms of any engagement with Russia, there would be, quote, no compromises on Ukraine's territorial sovereignty. There have been a lot of conversations in the past about whether potentially Ukraine would be willing to concede Crimea, for example, which was annexed back in 2014. 
before the invasion started, there were some rumblings that maybe Ukraine was willing to do that. Now, President Zelensky feels very strongly that he's in a position where that becomes a sort of political impossibility for him because of what you heard Will Ripley articulating there, the anger, the grievances, the horrors that the Ukrainian people have lived for, but through rather. But all of that makes this very complex when it comes to what happens next? Where does this go? How does President Putin respond? You heard President Biden say again and again as well, President Putin has failed, President Putin will fail. But the reality is when you look at what's happening on the ground in Russia, it does not appear that there is any kind of uprising or something of that nature that would really threaten Putin's rule uh, as being imminent. And so the question does still linger. What is the ultimate end game for this? How can uh, both sides come together at a certain point and, and try to cobble out some kind of a negotiated settlement? Clearly, no one is ready to make that step yet. But I thought it was very interesting that President Biden was basically telling the American people, get ready and the EU and NATO, because we are committed to staying this course for as long as it takes. And in fact, Nick Payton Walsh, who, who has also spent a lot of time in Ukraine, uh, one of the main items of discussion, both leading up to this event and also today's press conference, is this new advanced missile defense system, the Patriot system that the U.S. is has finally agreed uh, to send to Ukraine. It's going to take uh, up to 100 individuals uh, to operate the system. It's a defensive missile system. Uh, and it was brought up today uh, in terms of uh, Zelensky saying he even wants more. Yeah, I mean, the nature of warfare means that, of course, as soon as they implement some of that on the battlefield, they'd like to see as much more of it as possible to keep the skies of Ukraine safe from this persistent bombardment of infrastructure that often, in these almost weekly, if not more regular attacks, kills civilians as well. Uh, a little attention, I think, there too, President Biden pointing towards his European allies, potentially, as the reason why, for example, the United States hasn't delivered all these separate weapons capabilities that it slowly seems to deliver as the challenges mount for you. Ukraine, widening what they're willing to give in terms of their technology. Well, he suggested they hadn't given them all at once because they didn't want to upset their European allies. I'm paraphrasing there. That was essentially the message, saying that the US had to be cautious to keep the alliance intact. Many European officials we speak to will actually say they think it's them that possibly dragged the United States closer towards the idea of providing more weapons towards Ukraine and standing more steadily by them. But behind all of this messaging, Biden very clear to talk about this in terms of a generation fight uh, over European security and how much that matters to Democrats and Republicans. Zelensky very clear to use the phrase terrorist as much as he could when referring to the damage being done by Russia towards his civilian population is essentially still where does this go? And the first time these men have met in person since the war began will surely have had this notion of just peace discussed. You do have to remember that's been in every phrase, frankly, every appearance we've had from Joe Biden mentioning a just peace. But it's something that Zelensky referred to as a philosophical idea and essentially poured some cold water over, even suggesting compensation for damages uh, should in fact be paid by Russia before they're even willing to go down that road. So it's quite clear the scope for negotiation going forward forwards, maybe something that was simply not agreed upon uh, in those closed-door meetings, Jake. Kylie Atwood, our State Department correspondent, what stood out to you uh, about the way Zelensky and Biden characterized the, the relationship between the U.S. and Ukraine? 
Well, I thought it was really interesting to hear President Zelensky say that in the last 30 days or so, uh, there has been a change in the U.S.-Ukraine relationship. He said it has uh, solidified. It's become a real alliance. Uh, he didn't put uh, his finger as to exactly why that is, um, but he did note that those Patriot missiles are extremely significant for Ukraine to be receiving from the U.S. So perhaps that is part of it. And I think it's important to note that uh, President Biden, when asked about that just peace and how this could come to an end, he was very definitive in saying that the Ukrainians need to win on the battlefield first, and then that will put President Zelensky into a position where he can determine how this war ends. We have heard that time and again from Biden administration officials, but President Biden really doubling down on this idea that Ukraine has to be the one to determine how this looks and how uh, this will end. All right. Thanks to one and all. Let's bring in the former defense secretary under President Trump, uh, Mark Esper. Uh, Mr. Secretary, first of all, Zelensky finally got his White House meeting. I mean, I know you wanted it years ago under President Trump, uh, but he finally got it today. What's the importance of it? Well, Jake, uh, good to be with you. Uh, first of all, it was very important. The, the imagery alone of uh, President Biden and President Zelensky standing side by side, uh, President Zelensky there in his in his uniform, if you will, of, uh, of, of the siege that he's been under for some time now. I thought it was a solid press conference. You know, um, President Zelensky came off as authentic. He thanked the American people, the Congress, and he spoke to what the Ukrainian people are going through. Uh, President Biden, I think, delivered solid remarks, but, uh, and he talked a lot about what we're providing them, military assistance, aid, et cetera. I was hoping to hear more about why, uh, particularly at a time when, um, you know, the American people have been distracted by the January 6th committee reports, bad weather in the Northeast, or uh, Christmas, which is pending. It was a chance to tell the American people why we're there and to speak in the bigger, broader terms about autocracies versus democracies and what this all means. And, and of course, I think a bid to the Congress to say to Republicans in particular that there's going to be accountability on, on these systems and that he's going to pressure European allies to do a whole lot more than what they've been doing. And then finally, I think it was a chance to message to the Russian people as well, but we didn't hear much of that. So uh, for people watching right now, you're, you're seeing live pictures of the motorcade with Ukrainian President Zelensky arriving at the U.S. Capitol. He will be speaking there uh, this evening. We will bring that to you uh, live. It will be a joint session, uh, a joint meeting of Congress, members of the House and Senate in one chamber, uh, l- listening to President Zelensky make his speech. So, so back to Secretary Esper, uh, former uh, Pentagon Secretary, former Defense Secretary under, under uh, Donald Trump. You just said that you wanted to hear more about why, why the United States is giving so much money, armaments, sanctions, uh, et cetera, et cetera, for this cause. And, you know, there are a lot of Americans out there who probably do not fully understand. Uh, There's an entire network that is against this uh, aid to the Ukrainian people. Tell us why. Why is it important to you? If you were Secretary of Defense right now, I know that you would be, just based on your past comments, you would be advocating for basically the same uh, course, I think, in terms of armaments and sanctions and more uh, to help Ukraine. Why is it important to you? Well, first of all, it's important uh, to tell the American people this because there is concern that the Putin strategy, rightfully so, is to wait us out, to wait for the West to weaken and, 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 and to leave the, the field open, if you will, for Vladimir Putin. And of course, this happens at a time when Republicans are coming into power and there, are, there is a minority in the Republican Party 
that questions this aid. So I think this is a key reason why Zelensky came now. But why is this important? Because Ukraine is on the front lines of the 21st century conflict between democracy and autocracies. And on one side is Russia and China and a host of others such as North Korea and Iran. And on our side is the United States, our Western allies in Europe, and of course, uh, Japan and, and uh, Australia and others. And it's important that we signal in this conflict that we will stand with the Ukrainians till the end, that we'll help them defeat Russia, help them defeat an autocrat called Vladimir Putin. Because if not, then countries uh, such as uh, China and Russia seek to change the international order. They don't like rules and laws. They don't share our values. They want to live in totalitarian societies where surveillance uh, is everywhere and your rights are limited. That's not the world none of us want to live in. President Biden vowed tonight to, to stay united with Ukraine, quote, for as long as it takes. Uh, do you fear the U.S. public does not have the appetite for that? And we should just note, you talked about a minority of the Republican Party uh, questioning this aid. That minority is about to become very powerful. Uh, the possible new House Speaker has talked about his concerns about aid to Ukraine. Kevin McCarthy. Well, look, they're, they're, yes, Jake, there they're, they're are minorities on, on both in both uh, uh, aisles, of course, maybe more so on the Republican side. But this is where leadership comes in, uh, leadership in the Republican Party, leadership from the White House in terms of rallying the allies. And I think, you know, the American people will, will stand behind uh, the president and this conflict and support the Ukrainians if we explain to them why and, and talk them through this and, and give frequent updates. And look, again, I think it's important that the European partners do more. The United States at this point will now have spent more than $50 billion in economic, financial, and military aid. Most of our NATO allies have spent less than $600 million in military aid. We need them to do more. It reassures the American people that we're all in this fight against autocracy. So I, I think it takes that type of leadership uh, by the White House, by the president to do that. And he's, he's done fine so far. But there's so much more that needs to be done to include, by the way, uh, providing uh, the, the means to, to prosecute this war uh, that the Ukrainians keep asking for, particularly attackums and, and, and tanks and things like that. The Patriots is a great move, but it's not a game changer. If, if the Ukrainians are going to uh, uh, regain their, their country, their territory, and, uh, and really win, they need the weapons they're asking for. Former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, thank you so much. Good to see you, sir. Much more on Zelensky's visit to Washington. Next, he's heading to Capitol Hill. Well, he's in Capitol Hill to address a joint uh, meeting of Congress. And we're, of course, tracking other news stories, including the situation on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border as we wait for the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on Title 42. We're now seeing migrants trying to cross the Rio Grande River in homemade rafts. Stay with us. Internationally, at any moment, the U.S. Supreme Court could decide what will happen to Title 42. That's the Trump-era pandemic policy that permits border agents to reject asylum seekers and immediately send them back over the border out of the United States. This Supreme Court decision, which is pending, will affect cities along the U.S.-Mexico border and throughout the country and dictate the future of the thousands of migrants waiting to get into the United States. But for now, as CNN's Rosa Flores reports, they are all stuck in legal limbo. The anticipation building on the Mexican side of the border on the day Title 42 was set to be lifted. These videos shot by a migrant and provided to CNN show migrants in Matamoros using rafts to cross the Rio Grande. 
some in the crowd, provide commentary, saying they're tired of the long wait. And that U.S. immigration authorities are watching it all happen. I'm in Brownsville, Texas. The river is right behind me. Our drone cameras capturing a similar scene. A large group of migrants on the Mexican side, a large law enforcement presence on the U.S. side, and our cameras were rolling as a group of migrants, including a child, crossed into the United States and turned themselves into authorities. All this contributing to what one law enforcement source says is up to 1,200 migrants turning themselves into border authorities every day in this part of South Texas. Border Patrol is dropping off hundreds of them in respite centers, say advocates. Most of them travel out the same day. But local shelters are starting to see an uptick of migrants who can't afford to. So migrants from all over the world. Yeah, they're coming in from all over the world. Like this family from Venezuela who say they sold everything they owned and borrowed money to migrate to the U.S. as the situation in their country became unbearable. They say that about four months ago, word spread in Venezuela that the U.S., border was open. Y fue cuando ustedes decidieron venirse. That's why you decided to come here. Omar and Glenny want to go by their first names only because of fear it could impact their case. For 29 days, they braved the elements with their eight-year-old daughter Camila in an encampment in Matamoros. Once you got to the border, you realized that the border was closed. They turned themselves into immigration at the port of entry this week. What would you tell migrants? He says that it's not worth selling everything you own to come to the United States because the border is closed. As evidenced by these videos, showing migrants risking their lives and the lives of their children to end their wait in Mexico and start life in the U.S. You know, the Venezuelan couple in our story says that their first appointment with the U.S. immigration court judge is set for November 2024. That's nearly two years away. But, you know, that speaks to the backlog in the U.S. immigration court system right now. According to data, uh, federal analysis of federal data by a group at Syracuse University, for the first time in history, there are more than 2 million U.S. immigration court cases in that backlog, Jake. So you might imagine the pouring of migrants that we're seeing that are coming into the country right now, they don't even realize the backlog that they're stepping into. Jake. Rosa Flores in Brownsville, Texas, right near the U.S.-Mexican border. Thank you so much. Frigid temperatures moving in across the country, fueling a developing bomb cyclone that will bring blizzard conditions to several states. We'll tell you where next. In our world lead just before tonight's deadline, Benjamin Netanyahu announced he has formed a new Israeli government. And as CNN's Hadass Gold reports for us from Jerusalem, Netanyahu's coalition of political allies will become the most right-wing government in the history of Israel. And that is causing plenty of apprehension there and around the world. The new Israeli government setting off alarm bells around the world. Even allies warily eyeing Benjamin Netanyahu's new ministers, who will make up the most right-wing government in Israeli history. A stark change from the last coalition, now made up all of men and all orthodox, except for Netanyahu himself. Most recognizable is Itamar Ben-Gvir, once convicted of anti-Arab racism and supporting a Jewish terrorist group. Now, national security minister in charge of Israeli police. Eager to allow Jews to pray at Jerusalem's holiest site, where only Muslims are now allowed to worship. A place that has sparked intifadas, 
and even wars. Former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Danny Ayalon, warning Washington will be on high alert. If they will perform what is conceived in Washington as provocations, for instance, a change of status in Temple Mount, or uh, unchecked uh, enlargement uh, of uh, new settlements. This could be a very, very uh, big problem for Netanyahu and, and for the government. Then there's Betelal Smotrich, another far-right settler lawyer turned politician, has been named Minister of Finance and has also been given power to appoint the head of the Israeli body which controls border crossings and permits for Palestinians. Smotrich supports abolishing the Palestinian Authority and annexing the West Bank. Israel's staunchest ally, the United States, perhaps hoping the rhetoric won't match the actions. We will gauge the government by the policies it pursues rather than individual personalities. Other appointments causing uproar include a gay rights opponent who has vowed to ban pride parades to a position in the education ministry and proposed changes to the law of return, further restricting who was considered Jewish enough to be permitted to immigrate to Israel. Netanyahu, for his part, has repeatedly claimed that the buck will stop with him. I've had such partners in the past, and they didn't change an iota of my policies. I decide the policy with my party. But as the government has taken shape, his critics, like this cartoonist, say he's creating a monster he won't be able to control. Hadass Gold, CNN, Jerusalem. And our thanks to CNN's Hadass Gold for that report from Jerusalem. Turning to our national lead now, more than 100 million Americans in more than 25 states are under alerts for snow and ice as what's called a bomb cyclone is developing and with it, Arctic air sweeping in across most of the country. Let's get to CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam. And Derek, this is a dangerous storm. Yeah, it truly is, Jake. You know, my producers and I have been watching in real time the progress of this Arctic cold front blasting through the western parts of the state. Uh, It is a negative 40-degree wind chill currently in Cheyenne, Wyoming. That dropped a mind-boggling 75 degrees Fahrenheit in just over two hours. That's what it feels like on your exposed skin. Negative 40, we'll talk about the threats there. The obvious threats, right? Uh, The air temperature there actually dropped a record-breaking 43 degrees Fahrenheit in one hour. That is an incredible amount, an incredible feat that's never been broken before in Cheyenne, Wyoming. That just puts it into perspective. When you're talking about wind chills between negative 35 to negative 45, you start getting the terminology from the National Weather Service that talks about uh, the potential, at least, for life-threatening cold. And certainly, as you head outside, the potential for frostbite comes in within a matter of minutes on exposed skin. This is a current look downtown Jackson, Wyoming, where the cold front is moving through as we speak. Denver, I'm looking at you. It is headed your way within the coming hours, if not minutes. Your temperature, not 100 miles away from Jackson, Wyoming, or Cheyenne, Wyoming, I should say, is in the upper 40s to near 50 degrees. So a balmy comparison. We're going to drop over 60 degrees here by tomorrow morning, and that means that you're going to feel the effects of this Arctic blast. 100 million Americans in the path of this storm. It doesn't look that impressive yet, but it is really starting to wind up, and it will bring blizzard conditions and cold, cold air all the way to the south. All right, bundle up. Derek Van Dam in the CNN Weather Center. Thanks so much. We're less than two hours away from President Zelensky's address to a joint meeting of Congress. I'm going to bring you special coverage of the historic address along with my colleague Aaron Burnett. Stick around. We'll be right back.
When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.